iTunes presents Meet the Author. Good evening and welcome to the Apple Store Soho. We're very pleased to have you here for another exciting Meet the Author event uh, with author Chuck Palahniuk uh, as he discusses his best-selling novel, The Subversively Comedic Choke, and its big screen adaptation with screenwriter-director Clark Gregg. In a little while, you'll be treated to a special reading with the author, followed by a discussion on the making of this film, which releases in theaters on September 26th. Choke is currently available as an audiobook download on the iTunes store, where you'll also find uh, a podcast of tonight's event in a few weeks, so check that out. Here to introduce tonight's special guest is the film's screenwriter and director, and also acted in the film Iron Man. Please welcome Clark Gregg. Thank you. Uh, seven years ago, I was, I was brought a book by one of my favorite authors to adapt. And I read it in one night, and uh, I, I, I begged, borrowed, and stole, and threatened uh, everyone I had to for a couple of months until I, I had secured the rights to choke. And I spent four and a half years adapting it, and a year and a half trying to put it together. And we shot it last summer, and it's about to come out. Um, Thank you. We shot it right here in New York, New Jersey. Mostly at a steaming mental hospital in New Jersey. Um, yeah, Jersey's in the house, too. Um, and uh, uh, you know him as the author of such brilliant, important works as Fight Club, Lullaby, Survivor, Invisible Monsters, Haunted. He's... Uh, one of the great writers working today, one of the great satirists working today in the tradition of, of Kurt Vonnegut, in my opinion. And uh, I'm very, very honored to introduce Chuck Palahniuk. So how many folks here who have never been to an author event, an author reading? See, see? They all have little tiny lasers involved, so this is tradition. Oh. Um, this is kind of my low-tech way to, uh, to make laser choke so that something happens other than a person just reading out of a book. And, uh, and I guess the first part of the program is I'm supposed to read the excerpt? Yes, okay. So this is a, a chapter from Choke. Chapter 9. It was one afternoon when our stupid little boy and his foster mother were in a shopping mall that they heard the announcement. This was summer, and they were shopping for back to school, the year that he was going to be in the fifth grade, the year that you had to wear shirts with stripes to really fit in. This was years and years ago. This was, this was only his first foster mother, up and down stripes he was telling his foster mother when they heard it. They heard the announcement. Would Dr. Paul Ward, the voice told everybody, would Dr. Paul Ward please meet your wife in the cosmetics department of Woolworths? This was the first time that the mommy came back to claim him. Dr. Ward, 
Please meet your wife in the cosmetic department of Woolworths. This was their secret signal. So the little kid, he lied and he said he needed to find the bathroom and instead he went to Woolworths and there in Woolworths, opening boxes of hair color was the mommy. She had a big yellow wig that made her face look too small and she smelled like cigarettes. With her fingernail, she opened each box and took out the brown bottle of dye inside. She'd open another box and take out the other bottle. She put the one bottle inside the other box and, and put it back on the shelf. She opened another box. This one is pretty, the mommy said. She looked at the picture of a woman smiling on the box. She switched the bottle inside with another bottle, all the bottles the same dark brown glass. Opening yet another box, the mommy said, do you think she's pretty? And, and this kid, he's so stupid, he says, who? The mommy says, you know who. She's young too. I just saw the two of you looking at clothes, she says. You were holding her hand, so don't lie. And this kid, he's so stupid, he didn't know to just run away. He couldn't begin to even think about the very definite terms of her parole or the restraining order or why she'd been sent to jail for the past three months. And switching bottles of blonde into boxes for redheads and bottles of black into boxes for blondes, the mommy said, so do you like this one? And the boy said, you mean Mrs. Jenkins? And not closing the boxes, just perfect. The mommy was putting them back on the shelf, a little messed up, a little faster. And she said, do you like her? And like this is going to help this little stooge, the little boy, he says, she's just a foster mom. And not looking at the kid, still looking at the woman, smiling on the box, the mommy said, I asked you if you liked her. A shopping cart rattled up next to them in the aisle, and a blonde lady reached past to take a bottle with a blonde picture, but really a bottle of some other color inside of it. This blonde lady put the box inside her cart, and she got away. The mommy said, that woman, she thinks of herself as a blonde. The mommy says, what we have to do is mess with people's little identity paradigms. What the mommy used to call beauty industry terrorism. The little boy looked after the lady, the blonde lady, until she was too far away to help. The mommy said, you already have me. She said, so what do you call this foster one? Mrs. Jenkins. The mommy said, and do you like her? And she turned to look at him for the very first time and the little boy pretended to make up his mind and he said, no. And the mommy said, do you love her? And the little boy said, no. And the mommy said, do you hate her? And this spineless little worm, this little boy, he says, yes. <laughs> and the mommy said, you got that one right. She leaned down to look him in the eyes and she said, how much do you hate Mrs. Jenkins? And this little coos, this little boy, he says, lots and lots. And the mommy says, and lots and lots and lots. And she put her hand for him to take and she said, 
we have to be fast, we have a train to catch, then leading him through the aisles, tugging his boneless little arm toward the daylight outside the glass doors, the mommy said, you are mine, mine, now and forever, and don't you ever forget that fact. And pulling him through the doors, the mommy said, she said, and just in case the police or anybody asks you later on, I'm going to tell you all the dirty, filthy things that this so-called foster mom did to you every time she could get you alone. So that's the excerpt. Okay, so now I think we're going to run a clip from the movie, a sneak, a never-been-seen-before thing, so keep the damn things off. Yeah, lasers off for the moment. <laughs> you Thank can point you. them at me. You point them at my movie, I'm going to come looking for you. Can't we just this once enjoy a nice meal like normal people? No. You can't fool people into loving you. Want to bet? Somebody saves your life, they'll love you forever. It's like the old Chinese custom. They feel responsible. They'll write, they'll send birthday cards, play it right, even cash. Unless you let yourself get rescued by some busboy who brings down 350 a week. Hey, that's mine. So who's it gonna be tonight? How about you, hon? You feeling heroic? Uh-oh, swatch. Okay, come on. There he is. You and me, we're about to be friends for life. Thank you. What do you want to do right there? So we're working in all media today. We're, we've got the film, the book, and now this is the interview portion and I get to interview Chuck for a few minutes. Um, in, in some of our conversations about adaptation and, and where your ideas come from, you've, you've mentioned that you felt like that you channel, that you get them from people you meet on tour, and that the ideas you have some kind of ownership of, but that you also feel that you, that you soak them in from other places, and I've always been curious about that. What do you mean, and where do you get them from? Kind of the job of any creative person is to identify and to express things that other people can't. Maybe they're just not fully aware of their feelings, or they're very kind of frightened and they feel isolated in their feelings, or they just don't have a skill set that allows them to communicate their feelings about this thing. So in a way, as I travel, I tell small portions of my life, and I look to see how those resonate with with other people. And the stories from my life that evoke stories from their lives tend to be the things that I really focus on. Because that way, you know, if I can draw from the experience from an enormous number of people to develop a theme, it's much more likely that that theme will resonate with enormous numbers of people. And for example, in Choke, the theme of Choke is things that are not what they appear to be. And for a long time, I talked to everybody I met 
and asked them about coded security announcements. And you know, at Powell's, which is the big independent bookstore in Portland, if they ever page, you know, do we have a copy of Catcher in the Rye? Does, do we have a copy of Catcher in the Rye in stock? That means that somebody has abducted a child in the store and they need to block all the external exits to make sure that nobody leads this kidnapped child out to the street and makes away with them. So I kind of love all these very banal ways we have of, of talking about horrific things. And a thousand people gave me examples from their lives. And that's really how I work is just this sort of harvesting of, uh, of experience. I know, I know here at the Apple store, if you say, if you hear them say, Hayden Panacher, please report to the Genius Bar. That means someone has brought an IBM computer into the building and that people are encouraged to stone them to death, right? Okay, maybe not. Um, uh, you've talked about a very personal moment I don't know, I, that, would, that kind of gave you one of the other main thematic ideas of Choke, which is the idea that people are the ways that we fool other people into giving us love. And uh, I wonder if you'd be willing to share that, the highway moment. You can yeah. say no. You know, I'm not sure. The, the summer that the, the Fight Club came out as a movie was just really going to be set up as the best and most incredible summer of my entire life. And there was one day I was waiting for a call from Time Magazine. And I was out in the yard and I was working on the grass because I was so excited I had to do something. But instead I got a call from a publicist that was working at my publishing house and she said the police in Lataw County, Idaho have found a dead body actually two dead bodies burned in a house and your father's car is parked outside this burned down house and it looks like a double murder you really need to call these people in Idaho and I really hope this is a joke and it wasn't a joke and I spent that spring driving back to Idaho, taking my father's dental records and some x-rays of his spine so that they could try to identify this burned body that ultimately was my murdered father. And making these long trips in the middle of this bad stress, in the middle of this good stress, was just so overwhelming that one night driving back from Idaho on this narrow two-lane mountain road, in the dark with no other cars in sight, still dressed up in my suit and tie from the coroner's inquest. I started to fantasize about some ordinary guy who had to drive a lot for his job, and that periodically, as he was overwhelmed in his life, he would pull over at the side of whatever highway he was on, and he would leave the engine running, he'd leave the headlights on, he would leave the driver's side door cranked all the way open, and he would walk up ahead of his car, and he was lying face down in the gravel in his suit, and he would lay there just getting colder and colder at night, knowing that eventually somebody with really warm hands would put two fingers against the side of his neck and feel him for pulse. And that this somebody would be an authority figure like a sheriff's deputy who would sort of embrace him and say, can you tell me your name? You're going to be okay. I'm here. You're going to be all right. And that this authority figure with a gun and a badge and a uniform and shiny shoes would sort of lift him and coax him back into his life and reassure him that everything is going to be okay. You're going to be okay. And I went as far as to even pulling over and sitting there 
deciding whether or not I was going to lie in front of my car until this happened. But then I realized that I was wearing the very best clothes I had in the whole world. <laughs> and I was not going to lie down on the side of the road in Idaho after a rain. It had just rained. So in a way, I kind of morphed that, that need for covertly fooling people into taking care of me. I was going to morph that into somebody who pretended to choke in restaurants so that somebody would save his life and feel you know, responsible for him in that moment. But that's really where the, the core idea came from. Okay, so uh, that's a very personal <clears throat> place to be writing from. And I feel that that's why the book is, for me, so painfully resonant, as well as being so funny, that you have that kind of objectivity about something so deep and personal. And yet, my dealings with you, my early dealings with you, I. I had one conversation with you right when, when I was beginning to write, and I said, I, you know, I, I know that there's a lot to this book, but that I feel like at its core, it's kind of a crazy punk romantic comedy. And, and you said, that's right, good, go write. And you said, but just whatever you do, please don't be too faithful to the book. And to me, there's a paradox there that's about having something come from such a personal place and you know, for it to be as good as it is, it needs to come from that place. And yet, through every step of the process, you p kind of pushed me to make it my own. That, and I'm curious, you know, you didn't, you didn't know me at all. And if anything, that might tend to push a, a writer to move away from the essence or the spirit of the book. And I'm curious if that's a philosophy of yours or, or what, what gave you the wisdom to say that? There... Uh a bunch of different things. And one was that I had seen your work already, and I had seen What Lies Beneath, which you screenwrote. And there was so much fuss about that, and people really seemed to enjoy that movie. Am I wrong? Okay. And, uh, and so, in a way, you'd proved yourself with, with that screenplay. So it wasn't that big a leap. But also, on the other hand, I had to kind of trust that... Uh, that you weren't going to spend that much time and that much money just to screw me over with a bad version of this story. That I really had to trust that you're somebody, well, but you're somebody who is really, really going to do their best to tell this story. In the same way that I try to do my best to tell other people's stories. And if people are going to trust me enough to tell their stories, then I need to pass that forward and trust other people to tell the stories that I have told which in a way are borrowed from other people. I see. That's it. So I spent, I, when he said, when Chuck said, you know, don't be too faithful to the book, I thought that was just extremely good novelist manners. And I didn't listen to him. And I spent over, over a year and a half, close to two years, struggling to do a super faithful adaptation that kind of lay there like the Frankenstein monster before any lightning hit it, just dead. And it wasn't working, and it was incredibly depressing because I, I felt like the book was so funny, and I felt like I saw it, and it didn't work. And finally, I got so fed up that I threw the novel in a, in a drawer and just tried to remember what had drawn me to it and to kind of what had, you know, work from memory and to kind of make it my own, kind of filter it through my own organism. And, and that's really what made it work. And in a way, I felt like you knew that, and I didn't. And I, I wonder then... When you came to see the movie, we finished the movie days before Sundance, and at the first screening at Sundance with 800 people, the first people to see the movie, Chuck was one of them. So 
I was the color of that woman's dress right there, uh, my skin, um, when, when it happened. And uh, I'm curious what that experience then is like to see uh, an adaptation, which for my money, the good adaptations always have to exist whole in a new medium and stop being a book and start being a movie. But what's that experience like for you? There's a, there's a song, and I can't remember, it was very popular when, you know, 20, 30 years ago, every time you go away, you take a piece of me with you. You remember that song? Yeah, everybody knows that song. It's and on iTunes, you can download it. <laughs> a couple of years ago, I was talking to somebody, and he was saying that he's never understood that this weird song that's about a, a guy breaking up, and his girlfriend is stealing all of his food. Because the chorus is, every time you go away, you take a piece of meat with you. And so I'm always fascinated when somebody says, I really like that green car. And I go, what green car? And I say, no, that's a blue car. And I sort of realize that we all live in this very subjective sort of fractured reality and that my version of everything isn't the truth. So I'm always really fascinated when I hear other versions of what I've kind of made up my mind about. And I think in a way that if, if the film is going to really completely duplicate a book, it's kind of pandering to the book and it's never going to have its own sort of identity, its own respect and autonomy, its own authority, because it will just always be judged as a kind of version of the book. And so I was really, really looking for something, for Clark to do something that would stand on its own as Clark's version of that song that was gonna really entertain me and make that song fresh to me. Because I've been singing that song for years. And I know that song by heart. And so I wanna hear Clark's version of that song that's gonna make it, every time you go away, you take a piece of meat with you. You will never hear that song again without thinking meat. <laughs> and so in a way, I was looking for Clark to do a version of that story that would, in a way, replace the previous version. And I think that's, that's what should happen. That should be evolution. So that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Great. Well, okay. I think now we're going to roll yet another super top secret clip. And then we'll come back and I, I think I'm in the hot seat. No, she didn't. Afternoon, your loftiness. Sup, Lord? Spare me your dissembling and relinquish the Forbidden Gazette. Okay, you're doing an accent thing now, aren't you? He is, right? Yeah, I thought we were supposed to be Americans. I was reared in Yorkshire by the Good Friars and only recently made the voyage to the New World. Come on, Charlie. You went to Country Day with my cousin Todd. Shh, dude, dude. You know something? You two are this close to getting banished. You hear me? This close. What sayest thou? Give me the newspaper. What's a newspaper? Yeah, Charlie, I don't think they get invented for like another 80 years. <laughs> That's good. You're funny. You both, you think you're so funny. Always making fun of anything that means anything. That... <laughs> yep. The, uh, the, if there's any chorus I always hear is, don't expect this to get made into a movie. 
And I heard that from the very moment that I sent Fight Club in. And I heard this constantly about, of all things, choke. And recently, Clark was talking about a distinction I'd never heard before, um, ED, which until he told it to me, I thought it stood for erectile dysfunction. That's what I was talking about, man. <laughs> but apparently ED stands for something else, something uh, you know, much more applicable. And I was hoping that he would talk about that in relation to choke. Okay. Uh, <laughs> um, when we were trying to put this together, as any Chuck fan, I thought, this, this is a no-brainer. This, this is the... You know, this is a, a Chuck book, and it's got the colonial theme park, and it's got uh, sexual addiction. It's, come on, who doesn't want to go see that? Others didn't quite see it that way. They said, mm, it's tricky, it's tricky, because the world you've created, it, it's ED, you know, it's ED, man. And I was like, okay, what, what, I think I know what ED is. I don't know how it really pertains to this, because it's not something that Victor has. And they said, no, ED, it's execution dependent. That means you're a first-time director, and this is complex material with a complex tone. And nobody's going to want to put any, any amount of money, you know, more than 10 or 20 bucks, into producing a movie that you're probably, in most people's estimation, really only going to blow. And uh, I said, oh, okay, somebody could have told me that four and a half years ago, you know. And, uh, and yet we soldiered on. And, you know, this is, this is where, thank God, for people like Sam Rockwell and Angelica Houston, who just cared about the material. You know, I, I tried to warn them, you're going to be at a mental hospital in New Jersey in August, and you won't have a trailer. You're going to have a padded room with a little table and some, like, fake Evian. And, um, and when those people signed up, then they go to Europe, and they talk to some people, and they say, well, it's about ED. Um, they say, ah, yeah, yes, sir, but we only need a little. And, you know, they, because those stars are attached, you get a little bit of money, and you end up in New Jersey, and you get to shoot it. And uh, that's, that's why it's tricky to get movies made. It kind of gets trickier all the time. Um, and it's why it's so important to have actors who are still committed to, you know, getting independent voices heard. And if it wasn't for them and for some of the sacrifices you made to see it made in a kind of uncensored, independent way, it uh, would not have gotten made. When he said knock off Evian water, um, when they had tried to do product placements for Fight Club, they'd gone to all these major people and all of them said, a romance about anarchism? No, no. We don't want... Ritz Crackers was one of their primary sponsors they were going after, and Ritz Crackers wanted nothing to do with Fight Club. But, uh, but I loved that one of the product placement people was a, the Mexican version of Evian water. It is. So who would buy bottled water from Mexico? That just it was like, like a Bustelo disaster. water. I don't know, but I was glad to have their support, and we featured their product prominently. <laughs> I think we stuck died. an Apple computer in there too in uh, one of the scenes, but uh, that was not approved. Um, the the one thing that I'm really fascinated by is. How do you establish your authority with all of those people? I mean, you're managing an enormous number of people who are doing totally different things and probably all don't want a boss. How do you establish They especially your don't want a boss on the salary that they have on this movie. Um, 
You know, you hire. I hired good people. I hired, I hired a DP, and he brought his people, and he he kind of forced them to listen to me a little bit. And you know, at the beginning, people were actually listening to the stuff I said. I was trying to kind of pretend like I knew what I was talking about. And then we started shooting these scenes in the Colonial Village at the end of the first week. And anybody who had been listening to me, once they saw me in the frilly shirt with the wig. The, the kind of authority figure thing was shot. I might as well have had a lot of little red dots over my face the whole time. Um, I was lucky that, uh, I was, you know, it's again, <laughs> Sam and Angelica were kind of doing what I said, or at least kind of collaborating with me, and I think it made other people go along with it. And, you know, the, the upside to a shoot like that is the hours are long and nobody's making any money, but we're there because we like the project. A lot of people were fans of yours. And, you know, we're at a kind of crazy colonial theme park that's abandoned in New Jersey. And it was kind of fun. <laughs> you make me nervous when you do that. <laughs> no, it's, if you really knew the, the circumstances in which they were they're making this movie, um, in this abandoned mental hospital that was just nightmarish, um, that the story in itself was just so outlandish. Um, could you talk about that? Just There were people who wouldn't get out of their tractor trailers because they had such a bad feeling in this place. And there was a whole sort of mythology that built up during the, the shoot. Yeah, there's a, it was a mental hospital uh, near Verona, New Jersey called Overbrook. And it was built around 1910, and they had, I think, 75 buildings at one point. It was an entire city for the mentally ill. Um, and uh, it was closed down. Uh, it was down to about five or seven buildings. They shot a lot of the kind of last episodes of the Soprano Uncle Junior's kind of mental collapse took place there. And there's a lot of ghosts. There was, there was two main ghosts. And, you know, these police and kind of police and fire guys who kind of take care of the place now that it's empty, you know, they're the toughest guys I've ever seen. And they were kind of like, well, just, we don't go in that building. <laughs> this building, there's a ghost in this building, but we'll go because it's this kind of sexy nurse in a Florence Nightingale dress. The sexy nurse ghost I was kind of hoping to find. And I figured given our theme, she was probably going to show up, but I never saw her. But there was another building where there just was some like something out of the shining, just that people came in just and came out messed up, some dark energy. And, you know, somehow we still managed to have our laughs over in the buildings. We just didn't go to building five. And there were also some sort of what could have been really creepy scenes. One of the scenes that seemed seemed to be the funniest scene for God knows what reason is the sort of simulated consensual rape scenario. You know, how did it feel shooting these scenes that could have just been a huge disaster if they were just tweaked the wrong way? Um, I wish I had a good answer for that. The, the, the best answer is I hired, I hired really good actors who, it, it, it seems like it drew the right people. You know, that there was plenty of people, kind of financiers and such, and, and a couple of actors at the beginning who kind of read the script and were appalled, you know, didn't, didn't see it the same way I saw it and said, this is so dark and, and off-putting and who wants to hang out with these people? And I said, I, I think it's kind of funny, but we'll see. And, um, and luckily kind of, you know, again, Sam Rockwell and Angelica Houston and all the right people said, oh, no, no, this is funny. What do you mean? We're going to... We're going to have some fun with this. And so that that scene in particular, 
they played it very truthfully. And yet, I think, in the, I think in the back of their mind, they could play it so truthfully and explore some of the depth, some of the darkness in it, because they knew that later it would be funny, if that makes any sense. And uh, it, just recently, you've talked about working with David Mamet, and that one of the things he taught you was that a film set should be kind of like a party, and you as director should be kind of like the host and facilitate people having as much fun as possible. Would you talk about that? Yeah, I, mean, I was fortunate. I've been fortunate to work with Dave a number of times, uh, both at the Atlantic Theater Company on 20th Street, which I helped found with him a long, long time ago, and uh, also in a couple of his movies. And it's truly striking. You, you know, the, again, the, he, he, nobody gets a lot of money. His movies are kind of low budget, and so you're working really long hours, and you're in kind of a crappy trailer, and you can't wait to get there the next day because it's just the funnest party. Everybody's kind of you see your friends and. It's just not a kind of oppressive, angry vibe. Nobody yells anybody. Everyone's just there to try to get the scenes. And you've got great material to work with. That always helps. And uh, it was certainly a cue I took from him. If, if you make it fun, anytime you're doing a comedy, if you're not having fun, the problem, chances are the audience isn't going to either. So I, I knew that if it felt too grim, even though we were in that kind of grim environment, no, it, it was not going to be funny. Yeah, so now, now we're going to take a few minutes, and if anybody here has questions, we'll, we'll open it up to those. Uh, there. I think that's for you. The, so the question was, if you have a great idea and you're in a car, how long do you have to get it down before you lose some essential component of it? Yeah, number one, I do the same thing. I write every first draft on the back of my hand <laughs> so that at the end of the day I can kind of judge you know, okay, what is worth moving from the hand to the notebook? And the best ideas make it into the notebook. And then maybe once a week or even once a month, I sit down with a notebook and the computer. And again, there's another cull and only the very best ideas that still resonate make it from the notebook to the computer. And in the meantime, I'm kind of beta testing the ideas on my friends and my peers and the writer's workshop I meet with every week. And you know, I tell the anecdote or I tell the idea, and if people instantly grab it and start contributing to it or tell their version of it, I know that it really engages people instantly and it's a good idea. But if people somehow they just can't attach to it, there is no cultural precedent for it, and they just sort of shrug it off and change the subject, then I know it's not worth, it'll never make it from the hand to the notebook. So. Just wash your hands every night, and only the best things go the next way. Somebody else? Uh, there. Okay, the, uh, you know, all of the, uh, so the question was, what is Brad Pitt really like? <laughs> no, the question is, there's a kind of a romantic through line in pretty much everything I write, and do I think that love conquers all? Uh, no, love doesn't conquer herpes, but everything else. <laughs> I sort of see love as... Um, I see love as, as an act of faith, as a sort of act of, of self-focus and dedication and intention. That if you cannot sort of commit yourself to, to one primary passion, whether it's a person or whether it's a, sort of a creative act, that if you can't commit yourself to this one thing, then 
uh, you just don't have it yet. That you have to commit yourself in this one sort of passionate, dedicated, intentional way to find any depth in your life. And that's sort of symbolized through, you know, a, a romantic attachment in the books. People tend to move in my books from isolation, where they have a, an enormous number of very superficial passions, to community, where they have one very deep passion. Um, and it's very much kind of what I discovered when I was 33, and I decided that the rest of my life was going to be about trying to write just one really good story. Um, and it's instead of sort of closing me off from all these options, it's given me this enormous life I never could have dreamed of. And I think that what we see of as romantic love does the same thing. Yes, there in the hat. I'm sorry, it's not a hat. It's a ha it's a hairband. I'm sorry, I could I can't see. It's the, okay, the question is how, how did I work around the sexually explicit material in the book to put it in the movie because the sexually explicit stuff is very near and dear to your heart. Is that right? Well, what's your name? Sue. Well, Sue. The sexually explicit stuff is very near and dear to my heart as well. Um, and yet, and yet it's, it's kind of been proven that uh, an X-rated movie or, or an unrated movie gets seen by about 19 people. And I have, so I had a kind of split, I had a kind of split uh, series of intentions because I wanted to bring this great story to an even wider audience than had taken it in as a book. Um, and I'm an actor first, and I'm married to an actor. And I personally, when I'm, when I'm watching something that's, too explicit or gratuitously explicit, it's not that I mind it, a part of me really digs it. But another part of me is taken out of the movie. I think, oh my goodness me, that's, that's Christian Bale's scrotum. <laughs> Actually, I don't think that movie's out there. Um, but I don't, I, he's not the character anymore to me. And, and it's not the character's scrotum. I'm gonna stop now, okay. Um, <laughs> so, that's the fine line. I, as a, as a first-time director, I, I can only work with kind of my favorite directors are the kind that I'm not going, whoa, what a brilliant shot all day. Because then I'm out of the movie. And I want to get lost. And I wanted, I wanted people to get lost in this. And I wanted it to be, at the same time, as shocking and real as what it really is to be um, sexually addicted, sex, sex, uh, sexual compulsive. It's... You know, one of the things that drew me to it is that I think that in a society where, you know, what you do if you're not feeling right is you, you drink something or you take something or you buy something, that, you know, sexuality for a lot of people is really something you do to kind of feel better. And then when you turn around and try to use it for another purpose, those muscles haven't really been developed. And I, that's what drew me to the book. And so I felt like you can't really have the transition that Victor's trying to make into a kind of romantic version of sexuality unless you really accurately and in the way Chuck did, unflinchingly portray the dysfunctional version of the kind of extreme sexuality, uh, the non-romantic sexuality. So uh, that was the fine line. I walked, and I guess the best answer is, you'll see when you see the movie, it feels pretty shocking, most people say, and yet when you walk out, I think you'll be hard-pressed to kind of remember when you saw anything that was too shocking. 
that a lot of it's done with how you frame stuff. I know that when I see stuff, the things that I find most sexy or most shocking in movies often stop right short of showing me everything and kind of what's just on the other side of the frame that I get to fill in with my mind is more shocking than anything I see that they could show me, you know? Especially if it's prosthetic, you know? So that, that was really, that's really the, the way I tried to solve it. And, you know, I'll come over, I'll show it to you later, and you can tell me if you think I did it. There. So the question was uh, how we felt about the casting, and I think mostly it's about how Chuck felt about the casting. This gentleman felt like Denny, the best friend who was, was an emaciated character, and as you can see, Brad Henke is not. The, uh, you know, I, I always thought of, of Denny as kind of the emaciated, sort of shaggy from Scooby-Doo, but just to really distinguish them, I mean, you're talking about two white adult men with brown hair, and so, to establish them visually as distinct from each other, I thought it was just really helpful and just really smart to cast Brad, because visually you're not going to confuse the two people. And, you know, we're talking about a visual medium. So, no, I thought that was perfect. Uh, in the same way that sort of Helena Bonham Carter seems so unlike what I had envisioned, but she was ultimately such a, a great contrast that she was perfect. And she was perfect in a way that I could not have planned. And I love to be surprised that way. So that's kind of one of those things that, that I was really pushing and hoping for were the things that were going to surprise me and make the story fresh for me again. Jeez, uh, I, I wrote What a, new works does Chuck have coming up? <laughs> I wrote a novel in the cab down here from Midtown. <laughs> Don't laugh. <laughs> but you don't have a title yet, right? I have a working title. I have to get it down to one word, though. That's the rule. Um, you would be appalled how many of those I want to have your abortion lines that I put in there thinking this will never make it into the movie. You would be amazed how many of those actually go through. I was kind of stunned. And, uh, yeah. So I think you will be really, really impressed how many of those lines are still intact. In choke. Oh. Is that what you're saying? What's or, that? In choke? In choke, exactly. Uh -huh. Yeah. But I've got a book ready for next year called Pygmy, and we're just waiting for a cover now and for the copy editor to give it back. But it's a, a book about a 12-year-old foreign exchange student who's a brought over, and nobody realizes he's a terrorist, and he's making a science fair project that will be taken to the finals in Washington, D.C., where it will explode, killing tens of millions. So, it's a love story. <laughs> there. Pygmy? No, no. So, really? Again, don't hold your breath. <laughs> there, right there, man. The question is, I believe, for Ch you're asking Chuck. Uh, Chuck, she read that you went to some sexaholics meetings, and was there anything shocking that you can divulge from those? Actually, Sam Rockwell and Brad went to the sexaholics meetings to research their characters, too. So um, I was just really amazed that these incredibly sort of mundane-looking people that you would never expect, you couldn't even picture them having sex. 
And a lot of these guys were building contractors, you know, wearing four or five layers of plaid shirts with great big Joseph Stalin mustaches. And one of them, at the very first meeting, said how Thanksgiving, the week before, he had left his wife and kids at the dining room table, and he had gone and he put on an evening gown and given oral sex to strangers in a bookstore all Thanksgiving. And I was just shocked that this man could even find an evening gown. <laughs> but four months later, he had been keeping his fourth step, his sort of inventory of all of his transgressions for years. And he came into the group saying, I've got to kill her. I don't have a choice. I've got to kill her tonight when I go home from here. His wife had found his fourth step in the trunk of his car. And she had made copies of this notebook. And when he came home, she said, you give me the kids, the bank account, the house, and you move to another state and you never contact us again, or I give copies of this notebook to everyone in your family and everyone that you work with, and you will be destroyed. And this guy came in that night and he said, I don't have a choice. When I leave here, I have to kill her and then kill myself. And for the first time ever, I, could, I thought, this is how it happens. When you see on the front page of the paper and it says suburban guy goes home, kills wife, kills self, neighbors say they were perfectly happy. And I thought, this is how it happens. And the whole group spent four hours talking this guy down so that he could go home without killing anybody. And within two months, he and his wife had resolved this and they were still married and they were moving to forward with this greater understanding of who they really were after being married for 18 or 20 years. And so that was just an extraordinary thing to watch unfold over about six months. And you know, I, of course I would never use something like that in a book, but it was just amazing to watch it happen. Anybody else right here? Apart from, from our, our, your own work, have we read any books that we're excited about? Go first, because I did, but I can't remember it. The, uh, there's a short story collection out this year called uh, uh, Knock 'em Stiff by a man named Donald Ray Pollock. And I thought it was just some of the strongest, most extraordinary stories I'd read in, in a decade. They're just fantastic, like Amy Hempel or like uh, Tom Jones's stories. Uh, I just read Lush Life by Richard Price, which I adored. And I also, I only, only six months or so finally read Middlesex by Jeffrey Eugenides, which I also was crazy about. Anybody else? There, miss, ma'am. <laughs> In the majority of Chuck's novels, there's something that's cornflower blue. Is that on purpose? In every novel where I remember to do it, which I think is all of them, I use Cornflower Blue as a kind of homage to, uh, uh, is it John Kennedy O'Toole who wrote Confederacy of Dunces? Yes. Uh, to him, and I also mention Missoula, Montana in every book because it's where my grandparents are from. And I also mention the name Gwen because there was a girl in high school who'd been really troubled and in and out of mental hospitals and her name was Gwen and I just thought she was the most romantic attractive person in the entire world so Gwen you know is in every book too okay one or two more and then we'll finish up there 
I just got my body back. Um, uh, I'm hoping it won't take quite as long the second time. To be fair, it was something that I was doing not, you know, not being paid. And from the time I read the book, I got married and had a child and had to feed and support them. So I would, you know, I would work on, I would work on the adaptation between jobs where, where I could support my family. Um, it's crazy, everyone you talk to who's got a dream project, it always takes them, some people get lucky, but it always seems to take years to make it, to make it come off. And I also kind of look at it and I think I, I felt like I knew enough to do it as well as I could, you know, in, in the hours. I needed everything I learned in the months kind of coming up to it. And, and so it seemed like it kind of, I hate to say it, but it felt like it kind of needed to almost take that long to, for me to really be as prepared as you can be, um, but I, I truly hope it won't take that long to do it again because it was, it was the most fun thing I have ever ever done. One more, there. Is Survivor going to be made into a movie? From your mouth to uh, Francis Lawrence's ears, uh, Survivor was optioned by Fox, and they had a screenplay, and they were at the point of casting it. I understand, and September 11th kind of ruined the market for transgressive hijacking comedies. <laughs> yeah, so, but that's not the worst thing that happened, okay? Um, and so, you know, the, the climate has changed, and at this point, Survivor's been optioned, and, and the folks who made Constantine and last year made I Am Legend have Survivor. They have a screenplay, and they've said that they would like it to be their next project, but, uh, but you know, I've got books to write, and I, I kind of cross my fingers, and that's the best I can do. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Now the lasers. Now you can use the lasers. Thank you. We want to thank you. This episode of Meet the Author was produced by iTunes and the Apple Store in New York's Soho District. To purchase the audiobook or listen to more episodes in the series, click the link below or search for Meet the Author in the iTunes Store.